This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Brady Supply Shock episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with my colleague Emily Peck. Hello. Hello. And of course, Elizabeth Spires. Hi. Hi, Elizabeth. We are going to talk about Tom Brady this week because he just signed a massive deal to get paid huge amounts of money by someone who isn't a sports team. So we're going to talk about why anyone who isn't a sports team would want to hire that guy. We are going to talk about the baby formula shortage and what it says about the degree to which the FDA is captured and what the government can or should have been doing about it for the past two years. And of course, we are going to talk about stable coins, crypto and the whole implosion of that market and whether it matters. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So let's start with this idea that there's a whole bunch of magical beans with no intrinsic value, but which trade randomly at random prices at random times. And this week, the random price was lower than it was last week. And this seems to have freaked out a lot of people. I'm talking, of course, about the crypto market. I know, Elizabeth, that you are a bit of a crypto skeptic, as am I. I have been for about a decade at this point. But I also wrote a piece this week saying there is a potential, just a little bit of potential, that at this point, it is such big money and real money, like institutions have money in crypto, that there could possibly be systemic consequences to a crypto meltdown. Do we buy this? That could be happening. You know, I, I think of the crypto market as, or I feel like the conventional wisdom about it is that it sort of sits outside of the real financial markets. But what we're seeing in the last week is that, you know, if you have a lot of institutional holders of crypto and, and it takes pretty quickly, you do have ripple effects. So and my skepticism doesn't go so far as saying it doesn't matter or, or there are no real economic consequences. I think there are two big mechanisms whereby you get real world consequences from this one is let's say you have a fund i can't quite imagine what kind of fund but let's say there is a fund just to make it simple which has a bunch of crypto holdings and people see the crypto holdings and they say well that was a dumb fund to invest in so they pull their money out of the fund and then the fund doesn't want to sell all of its crypto holdings at a low because that would be locking in a bunch of losses that it doesn't want to have. So instead, it sells its non-crypto holdings to cash out all of the people who are redeeming their, you know, shares in the fund. And so all of the non-crypto holdings, you know, the stock in, I don't know, Apple or whatever the fund also owns, winds up going down because the crypto holders are selling that instead of crypto. So that's one form of contagion from crypto into the real world. And then the other one, which we can talk about, is stablecoins. Yeah, that's the big news this week, is what happened with stablecoins, specifically... Terra. Thank you. Terra and its <laughs> sibling coin, Luna, which Luna. Are, were branded yeah. as stablecoins, but really just backed by each other and... The guy who created it, Duquan, said it was worth a dollar. 
but it was again backed by another coin. It was a coin backed by another coin that branded itself as a stable coin that made maybe some people think it was sort of pegged to the dollar, which it was not. And it went on a death well, it spiral was. this week. It was pegged to the Whatever. dollar. And then it but pegged the in, peg. a ter- in a way that was loose, a loose peg. A wobbly peg? It was a pretty tight peg. Like, if you look at, like, the all-time price history of Terra, it was $1 the whole time until it wasn't. So yeah. it wasn't like it was somewhere around a dollar. <laughs> if it ever fell below a dollar and Luna was worth something, you could always just convert the Terra into Luna and make a profit if the Terra was trading below a dollar. So as so long as Luna was worth something, the peg was relatively reliable. The problem was that the minute Luna stopped being worth anything, Terra stopped being worth anything, and they both went to zero, basically. I guess in my mind, when something's pegged to a dollar and is branded as stable and is said to be backed by something, in my head I'm thinking, oh, that's a, a stable valuation. That's not something that's going to go to zero, but that's what happened, right? Well, I think that's two different things, right? Like, it's a stable valuation is true, and it's not going to go to zero is false, right? Like, the way that pegs work, and I, I also wrote about this on Axios this week, is that they're a way of reducing volatility, right? You create a peg so that things don't bounce around all over the place. They can reduce inflation in countries. They can keep import-export prices, you know, exchange rates stable and predictable. People generally like them. After the Second World War, we introduced this thing called Bretton Woods, where all of the exchange rates were fixed, because mm-hmm. it just makes things a lot easier and more predictable. And that's what a peg is. And then eventually, you get these fundamentals, which veer slowly over time away from where the peg is. And when the fundamentals are far enough away from the peg, then the peg becomes unsustainable and it breaks. But for so long as the peg is in place, it has utility and it has a certain purpose. But there's no such thing as a peg that lasts forever. In the world of crypto, you know, not lasting forever turns out it lasts for about 20 months because everything is fast in crypto. In the world of the Hong Kong dollar, you know, it's been going since 1983. So, like, you know, some pegs last longer than others. I guess is all I would say. Nothing, but none of them are forever. Yeah, I think maybe the distinction Emily's making is Terra versus something like Tether. You know, you give Tether a dollar and you get a dollar's worth of Tether back and Tether on the back end puts that dollar into some kind of interest earning asset class. And so in theory, you could get that dollar back, right? That's basically the money market fund model of stable coins. And, you know, the principle that Tether works on is the principle that underlies money market funds. They just say, you can always redeem your $1 share in a money market fund for a dollar, which we can have because we own a bunch of treasury securities and commercial paper and stuff. And we can sell that if you want to redeem it and you will give you a dollar back. In the case of Tether, no one actually really knows how much money they have or where the money is or what it's invested in. But that's the claim And again, that is obviously an avenue of contagion, right? Because if everyone converts their tethers into cash, then Tether would need to sell $80 billion worth of commercial paper and treasury securities and stuff like that. And that selling pressure in the market would do a number to the money markets. So that's another potential avenue of contagion, even if all of the Tether backing actually exists. If the tether backing doesn't actually exist, then it's worse. And tether wobbled this week, yes? Yeah, had a little wobble. Tether, which is backed in a more, in a less theoretical way 
then Tara wobbled this week because Tara wobbled. So people were like, oh God, none of these things are real. I assume that's how people were like, and took a lot of money out. And so then Tether had to come out and say, no, 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 we got it. We're It's all going to be fine. And then it went back. But I still think faith in this stuff has been rattled in a systemic way, whether or not there's contagion. The market itself has been really destabilized. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's been a lack of faith in crypto, which runs on faith. It doesn't run on anything else. Exactly. Like all of crypto is faith. Like the price of a Bitcoin is just faith. You know, like the only reason a Bitcoin is worth more than zero is because people believe that there are going to be people in the future who want a Bitcoin for vague and not easy to understand reasons. You know, and one of the reasons that Terra collapsed is that it was backed by a bunch of Bitcoin and that Bitcoin fell in value and that massively reduced the backing that was behind Terra. It wasn't all Luna. Luna was the mechanism that kept it at a dollar, but there was actually some Bitcoin backing there as well. I have this theory, I don't know if it's right, but it may be my naive theory that the FDIC and the fact that all of us know that we can put our money in a bank and convert it to other kind of money. You know, I put my dollars in the bank and then I check my app and I see my dollars are there and I totally trust that I can get my dollars back from the bank at any time. I know that even if the bank goes out of business, I can have my money back. It's like I totally have full faith that my money in the bank is backed by a real thing. That kind of faith kind of like makes you complacent about other things and more likely to believe like in a tether or even a terra or whatever. It kind of like has its own kind of contagion. Yeah, it's such an important insight that you're. it's a bit like when we've been going 100 years without any major infectious disease, Mm -hmm. like people become complacent about infectious diseases and then when we do wind up with an infectious disease they're like ah, it can't be that big of a deal because infectious diseases aren't that big of a deal even though you know they've killed tens of billions of people throughout history it's very much like that people who remember bank runs from you know before the fdic existed would never get involved in stable coins but those people Mm -hmm. don't exist anymore because the fdic has been in existence since the 1930s there's also, yeah. you know, a, a sort of phenomenon where I think a lot of the retail investors in crypto still think of it as some kind of store of value that's relatively stable, which is inexplicable to me. But Coinbase made an announcement last week that sounded like, to me, a, a normal disclosure where they basically said, you give us your money, it could go to zero, our company could fail, you could lose all of your money. And, you know, to me, that's something that you would be common sense going into it. But there was reaction to it where people seemed surprised by this, or they seemed like they were angry that Coinbase was bait and switching them or something. So that was a really interesting disclosure. And we should talk about this a little bit. Most institutional investors in crypto and a lot of individual investors in crypto hold their coins in what's basically called a self-custodied wallet. It's, you know, you own your own coins. If you have a brokerage account and you own a bunch of Apple shares and you hold that in your brokerage account, it doesn't matter if the broker goes bust. You still own your Apple shares. They belong to you. It's not like an obligation by the broker to give you Apple shares on demand. They are your Apple shares all along. If you put your money in a bank, that's different. It's not like you own that money. The bank has a liability towards you, right? Bank deposits are liabilities in the way that brokerage accounts are not. So everyone kind of assumed that 
a Coinbase account is a little bit like a brokerage account. That the Coinbase account is where I keep my Bitcoins that belong to me. And that is true for all institutional and some retail Coinbase accounts. It is not true of some other retail Coinbase accounts. There are like two different types of Coinbase accounts. Some other like forms of Coinbase account that individuals have, you do have a kind of commingling of funds and Coinbase you know, sort of owns those coins and owes them to you. And if Coinbase went bust, then maybe you would have to fight for those coins against Coinbase's other creditors. In reality, I, I suspect that a bankruptcy judge would find for the depositors and just let the depositors keep their coins. But also, in reality, I suspect that it would never go that far. And that you know, FTX or Binance or some big crypto company would wind up buying Coinbase long before it went bankrupt. It is always going to have some kind of equity value. But yeah, like this question of is a crypto account more like a brokerage account or more like a bank account is an important question. And no one really knows the answer. That's crazy. Until the SEC <laughs> decides to uh, enforce rules around it that nobody knew existed until that point. Well, <laughs> that's my question now is what is the regulatory picture going to look like? I mean, it does clearly seem like no federal regulator was, I mean, they move too slow on this, obviously, but that I guess that's their jam. They move very slowly. And now I know the SEC is saying it's going to step in and do more to regulate crypto, but it seems like it's about, I don't know, like five years too late to do anything. And so I'm sort of curious what happens now? If the crypto market kind of shrinks, it's like... I mean, yeah, it still needs regulation. And it looks mm -hmm. like the SEC is still on that path of kind of, almost by necessity, is on the path of regulation by enforcement. That it'll find, you know, a crypto company doing something and it'll say, you're not allowed to do that. That violates the law and it'll prosecute the crypto company. And then all of the other crypto companies will be like, oh, shit, I guess we shouldn't do this either. And you kind of get like an implicit set of regulations by looking at what the SEC has prosecuted. The SEC kind of has to do it that way because the only other way of doing it is for Congress to legislate regulations. And we are going to be waiting a long time before that's ever going to happen. To you know, try and get a majority of Congress to agree on anything, let alone on crypto, is, yeah, forget about it. Let's move on. Enough crypto. <laughs> we should talk about formula. Yeah, we should. We should talk about it. As we all know, there's a massive shortage of baby formula out there because of supply chains and recalls. And it looks like the messaging from the White House is basically saying, this is a monopoly problem. We don't have enough providers of formula in this country. There are only three or four. And so when one of them winds up with supply problems and recalls, that basically screws up the availability of formula for everyone in the country. And my response to that is yes, up to a point. But honestly, really, this is a FDA problem that like there's these weird labeling regulations on formula that effectively stop formula from being a globally fungible thing that we can just import all the formula we need from Europe or wherever and just sell it because the imported formula from Europe doesn't have the right form of words on the label and that this it's not an easy fix but there is a obvious fix to this problem, which is just import the formula that we're not making domestically. And the reasons why that fix isn't happening seem really fucking dumb. 
Yeah, I mean, the White House said yesterday it would start allowing imports soon. I don't know what that means. It's presumably going to take a long time. What surprised me, at first when I started reading about the baby formula shortage, everyone was like, this all started in February when Abbott had to shut down production because babies died from tainted formula. But it actually goes back to the beginning of the pandemic because parents ran out and hoarded formula just like everyone hoarded everything. And the industry was never able to catch up with that shortfall. This is two years ago. Like, is it a monopoly? It's yes. Amazing. Like, obviously, there's a problem there with these businesses if they can't make up for that hoarding from two years ago. Like, I can get my toilet paper just fine right now. There's plenty of hand sanitizer, you know, and other things. But like, the fact that they're still catching up from that is really disturbing. And is it an FDA problem? Is it an FTC problem? Is it a White House problem? There's definitely a regulatory problem here. I mean, people complain about rising gas prices, but like, what is more important to like keeping the citizens alive than baby formula? Like, these are citizens that cannot consume any other thing to stay alive. You know what I mean? Like, it's okay, wild so to me. Let me ask you a basic capitalist question, right? I am a manufacturer of baby formula. And a whole bunch of my baby formula winds up like disappearing from the shelves at the beginning of the pandemic because people hoard it. And so there's higher than normal demand from supermarkets for my product. But I know that that higher than normal demand is a purely one-off temporary thing, right? Caused by a one-off temporary spike in hoarding. I know that the number of babies in America is an extraordinarily stable and predictable <laughs> number. And that you know, there is not going to be any broad secular increase. In fact, there's going to be a broad secular decrease in demand for my product because the number of babies in America is going down rather than up. So I have capacity to produce a certain amount of formula. I have zero incentive to invest money in increasing that capacity just so that I can make up for that one-off spike in demand when I know that over the long term, demand for my product is going to go down rather than up. So I just keep on making as much formula as I can. That like quantum of shortfall just remains because I can't make any more. And then, you know, all of this stuff that happened in February happens and we get the crisis that we have right now. But just on a sort of logical level, it totally makes sense to me that it would be really hard to make up for that March 2020 hoarding shortage. That's why I think it's fair to blame the regulators here because you have to keep an eye on that. You have to, as regulatory bodies, making sure that the babies have enough food, you should be aware that the market mechanisms could cause a shortage. Like you should be aware that there was hoarding and be kind of like thinking forward, or at a minimum, you should take a look at the whistleblower complaint filed in December, months before, you know, Abbott shut down production about problems with the manufacture of the formula. It just, it seems like this is one of those markets where you have to have some kind of public intervention, you know, that otherwise things like this are going to happen, right? Yeah, I think this is also just a function of the FDA being the most captured regulatory agency we have, you know, it's sort of moving away from... There's a lot of competition for that title. Consumer consumer protection, which is what the labeling requirements are about, to protecting pharmaceutical IP. And so if if 
you know, you were really looking at this from a consumer needs perspective, you would figure out that labeling issue so that we wouldn't have these shortages. But there's little incentive right now for the FDA to do that when their incentives are all skewed toward protecting IP for pharmaceutical companies. Absolutely. Like the, the correct thing, and Emily is 100% right about this, the correct thing for the FDA to do when they see that like quantum of shortage post-pandemic is to say, right, how much shortage is there in terms of like cans of baby formula? Let's just import that many cans of baby formula. Problem solved. Yeah. But somehow no one does that. And remember, this was like the Trump era FDA that we're talking about here. So it's doubly OTOs. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is very upset about the meat monopoly, but like big formula needs a little closer look, don't we think? Like it's one thing if your steak is too expensive, but like if you can't get, again, the baby food and the infants die, like this is really serious. I think, um, you know, a lot of women I follow on Twitter were like, of course this is happening. No one cares about the babies. And it's also happening at the same time, you know, where Roe is about to be overturned and the baby supply could actually go up. These formula companies might need to step up production. (laughs) (laughs) There's not even enough for the current supply of babies. It's just, it's really, it's a crazy time. Yeah, come on, baby formula. Just needed to unleash companies. Like, take a look at the Supreme Court, man. We could have a supply shock of babies as a result of this. (laughs) Can we talk about the Brady supply shock? Yeah. Is that a segue? There's more Brady supply in the works. There's more Brady supply to the NFL. Tom Brady has come back to the NFL after retiring. He's playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I love that I am saying this with like confidence as though I have a clue what I'm talking about because with the amount I know about sports is zero. But yes, as I understand it, man who is good at sports decided to retire, changed his mind, unretired, is playing another year, getting paid $25 million a year to play another season for some team in Florida. And that's about normal if you're a superstar sports person to get these contracts where they pay you $25 million a year to play a season. What's fascinating is that as soon as he stops actually playing the game, he gets to go to Fox Sports and he gets to talk about the game on the telly. And when you go to Fox Sports and you talk about the game on the telly, you don't get paid $25 million, you get paid $37 million. That He actually gets paid more to talk about it than he gets paid to play it. He has a 10-year contract with Fox Sports worth $375 million, where the minute he stops playing the game, he gets to talk about it for $37 million a year. And the economics of this are truly, genuinely fascinating to me, and I love this story so much. Why are they so fascinating to you? I mean, he wouldn't get the $370 million if he hadn't, you know, played football for, what is it, like 20 years and gone to the Super Bowl multiple times and blah, blah, blah. He's the GOAT, whatever. So why is it fascinating to you, Felix? So the thing that fascinates me is because it is it kind of draws back the curtain on sports. The people think that people who get paid a lot of money for doing sports get paid a lot of money for doing sports because they you know, are good at sporting. In fact, they get paid a lot of money for doing sports because there are roughly $10 billion a year flowing into the NFL from broadcasters. And that lovely windfall of cash just gets divvied up among the team owners, the players, the support staff, the managers, you know, everyone. So if you are a player in the NFL 
or an owner in the NFL, you get your share of that suite $10 billion a year. And that can be a lot of money. That can be $25 million if you're a star player. But ultimately, all of that money really comes from broadcasters. And ultimately, you're sharing that broadcaster money with a lot of other people and a lot of other sort of shareholders and players. Whereas if you just go to work directly for the broadcaster, you can just get money straight from them and you don't have to share Mm -hmm. it with anyone. Fox is willing to pay $2 billion a year for rights to its NFL games, right? $37 is nothing compared to $2 billion. The addition of Tom Brady to the announcer roster on Fox Sports almost certainly makes that more than 2% more attractive as a piece of entertainment that you want to watch on the television. And so it's a bargain for Fox. I, I don't fully understand the economics here, but I, it, what seems to me what's happening is that the sort of Tom Brady brand is just completely decoupled at this point from Tom Brady, the football player. You know, he is not just a football player. He's an A-list celebrity who married a supermodel. And so I think what they're willing to pay for him so far exceeds what they would pay for somebody who has, you know, a similar amount of talent, maybe played in similar positions, because he's just sort of bigger than his skill set is. Tony Romo, who's the former quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, became an announcer and is widely known to be like an incredible caller of football games. Like the Wall Street Journal wrote a whole piece about how he's he can see the plays before they happen. Like he's really good at it. And I just Googled his contract. I'm doing research for you guys. And it's $17.5 million a year, according to my Googling, with CBS. So he's making less, I guess, than Brady, even though he is like a known superstar at actually doing this. Less than half. Yeah. And did Tom Brady even have to like audition? I mean, if I'm a sports broadcaster, I don't know. Do I feel bad about myself? Like you work your whole life to get to the big leagues to call the games or whatever. Probably not. A lot of them are former players. So maybe it's fine. I think if you're Tom Brady, though, you don't have to be good at it. Like somebody's put a (laughs) teleprompter in front of you. And if you can competently read it, you know, every 10 minutes, then that's your job. Yeah, everyone has a role in calling those games, I think. Well, we'll see. I mean, it could turn out to be a terrible deal for Rupert Murdoch, in which case, like, you know, we will all feel very sorry for Rupert Murdoch. (laughs) But it is fascinating how much these Murdoch employees or this particular Murdoch employee is going to get paid, right? Because it's so much more than anyone else who works for the Murdoch empire. So much more than any of the superstar like anchors on Fox News. It's more than the CEO of News Corp. You know, it he is going to be Rupert Murdoch's highest paid employee. And you're like, interesting. Higher than Tucker Carlson? I'm Googling again. Guys, I'm back on Google. Higher than Tucker Carlson, higher than Robert Thompson, higher than Suzanne Scott, you name it. Yeah. Very impressive. So the secret to having a really good journalism career is to play in the NFL first. I feel like it's an almost (laughs) certain road to riches. The minimum salary in the NFL is pretty high these days. I'm going to say the minimum salary in the NFL is like higher than 99.9% of journalists will ever make in any year of their career. (laughs) Of course. That's fine. I don't risk concussion every day when I walk upstairs to my desk. (laughs) Exactly. Journalists have a much lower rate of brain damage. (laughs) Ours is just self-inflicted. Yeah, if we get brain damage, it's just because we spend way too much time reading Elon Musk tweets. 
What is your number, Emily? I think it's time for a numbers round. Oh, I got this number from a newsletter written by my colleague, Felix. It is $4.8 million. Do you remember what that is from your newsletter, Felix? Oh, is that the frock? It's the frock. It's the Marilyn Monroe dress that she wore in 1962 when she sang to John F. Kennedy for his 45th birthday that sold at auction for in 2016 for $4.8 and was recently worn for like a hot minute by Kim Kardashian at the Met Gala. And Kim Kardashian apparently had to exist on like mostly tomatoes for like two weeks to fit into the dress. She lost 16 pounds in three weeks because yeah. she is committed to the bit. She's and committed to it. She fit into the dress very well. Mm-hmm. And then great. because it's such a precious dress, she wore the dress literally on the red carpet, but she's like, I would never sit down in a chair and eat a meal wearing this $4.8 million dress. So she ran back into this little area, which Vogue had set up for her and changed out of the dress into a replica dress for the rest yeah, of the Yeah, I evening. didn't realize that, that she wore a replica dress. Then the whole story made so much more sense because I, I was reading like all this like controversy and outrage that she would wear it and put this historical frock, as you call it, at risk. But no, it turns out she wore it for like a minute and then put on a replica. But like no one was talking about that, but that cleared a lot of stuff up. Also, just 16 pounds in three weeks on the tomatoes. I can't stop thinking about that. I mean, she could have just worn a replica, but I guess no one would have talked about it. Like I am talking about it right now. So she is the master. Authenticity um, has value, Emily. And Kim Kardashian is nothing if not authentic. (laughs) So there's a great conversation about this on to promote another Slate podcast on Culture Gap Fest. They like go deep on it. And I enjoyed listening. I have a brutalism number, giving it away a little bit. My number is $997 million, which is what looks like very close to the final settlement for the Champlain South collapse. We remember this when that big condo building collapsed in Miami. Obviously, everyone sued everyone because this is America, goddammit. And there were 10 different defendants. There were the developers of the condo next door who were doing work that weakened the foundations. There were the engineers who designed the place in the first place. There was a law firm. There was the condo association. There was a whole bunch of insurance companies. And basically, at the end of the whole thing, the lawsuit actually went relatively smoothly and quickly. And it looks like these defendants collectively are going to pay up about a billion dollars to be divvied up in a manner to be determined between the families of the 98 people who died. Wow. Are more buildings going to collapse in Miami? Like any regulatory progress from the accident? All of Miami is going to be underwater in 20 years. So assume that everything is going to go south in Miami. Might take the crypto industry with it. That's where they're all (laughs) headquartered now. Underwater coin. Different kind of contagion. Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is $120.00. So that's the price for a 12-pack of disposable diapers that Goop issued <laughs> Goop on, on Wednesday. With an accent over the E, a diaper. Diaper, which is described as our new disposable diaper lined with virgin alpaca wool and fastened with amber gemstones known for their ancient emotional cleansing properties. So it turns out that this was actually just a big stunt because Gwyneth Paltrow is now apparently a troll for good. <laughs> they were doing it to make a point about 
taxes on diapers, which apparently work out to around $120 a year for families that buy disposable diapers. So the diaper does not actually exist. But if it did, would you buy one? No. (laughs) (laughs) Great trolling from these ladies this week. The way that Gwyneth Paltrow has kind of doubly transcended herself and just become this sort of like self-aware meta shit poster is amazing. (laughs) She's a genius. So well done, Gwynny. I can't believe we said that on this show. I mean, actually, you know, we had Taffy on a while back who was kind of sort of defending Gwynny. She was totally defending her. And P.S. We got a lot of email about that. So I'm expecting more to come from this. (laughs) But if you haven't read Taffy's fantastic New York Times magazine profile of Gwyneth Baltrow. This is as good an excuse as any to call it up on the internet machine and read it because it's a wonderful piece. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about Marilyn Monroe in Slate Plus because she was the subject of an expensive painting, What Got Sold This Week. So we will talk about that in Slate Plus. Otherwise... Thank you guys for listening. It's been fun hanging out. And keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to the amazing Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada, who is back producing this show. And we will be back next week with more Slate Money. All right, let's talk about Marilyn. Not only is her frock worth $4.8 million, but her portrait is worth... million, which is more. Does this make sense to you, Elizabeth? (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, in as much as the art market ever makes sense to me, I I think it does. That that painting is super recognizable. Who do you think bought it? So I would say either Stevie Cohen or Ken Griffin, except for they both already own one. There are five of these, and... They both have one, and then the other two are also still in private hands. What's super interesting about this particular series of portraits is that none of them are in museums yet. So it is definitely possible that one of them would like to have a pair rather than just one, but it's equally possible that it's just someone who wants to join their exalted company, especially since Ken Griffin quite famously paid, depending on who you believe, either $240 million or $250 million for his, which is marginally less famous. $195 million almost feels like a bargain. Yeah, and Felix, you you basically said it is a bargain and it went for a lot less than expected. And this is a sign of, I don't know, what is it a sign of? The billionaires don't have enough money anymore. The billionaires are feeling the pinch. Feeling the pinch. <laughs> This is like a warning shot from the art market or something, or I don't know. I think the art market is doing just fine. We had a big Christie sale on Thursday night, which did incredibly well. And there's still a lot of money in the art market. And in fact, partly because there's no market where people can mark their paintings to market every day, a bunch of people actually almost feel that it's safer to have their money in art than it is to have their money in, you know, the NASDAQ. So... Demand for art is there, but demand for sort of ultra high-end trophy art, there's something mildly uncool about like an Andy Warhol Marilyn, given the sort of huge feminist wave that is overtaking the art world right now. 90% of the artists in the main show at the Venice 
Biennale are women. Most of the artists in the Sotheby's Now sale, which is coming up next week, are women. And then suddenly, you know, here's this Marilyn, this sort of iconic painting of a female sex symbol, just as a kind of male gazy kind of thing. Like, it seems a little bit not very courant in a way. And so for 195 million, you can buy a lot of art by a lot of women. You know, you can stock up on Joan Mitchell's and Louise Bourgeois's and Cindy Sherman's and Jenny Holtz's and Frida Kahlo's and what have you, you know, and you can, you can build an amazing collection for that. Or you can just have one sort of 60 year old Andy Warhol. And it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll buy a whole collection instead. Maybe. So it's not necessarily about the billionaires feeling the pinch. It could just be about the lack of coolness. Not that I ever thought billionaires were cool. <laughs> Although there's still coolness. I mean, like, to be clear about this, this is, this is arguably the most recognizable painting of the 20th century. You know, like, there is a lot of cool factor to this painting. And if you put it on the wall, people will gravitate to it much more than they will gravitate to any other painting. You can have it next to, you know, your Gerhard Richter, and you can have it next to your Picasso, and you can have it next to anything you like. And that will be the one painting that people will be like, oh, you have that painting. Like, if you are a multi-billionaire and you want like the motherfucking painting, this is the one you want. Or Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I would also argue that uh, of the multi-billionaires who can afford to buy that painting, not all of them are feminists or really thinking about the optics of, you know. <laughs> but this is the thing, this, right? It was sold at auction. So you need two or three of them to be bidding against each other for the price to go super high. If you only have one who wants it and it's being sold at auction, then they can get it for a relatively low price. That's why these things are often negotiated in private sales, because that one billionaire who bought it for 195 might well have been willing to pay 350 But so long as there was no one else who wanted on the night to pay 200 you know, he picked it up for 195 And you said in your piece, there's only like a dozen people in the world that could afford to buy a piece of art like that. Is that right? I feel like there's more, aren't there maybe, more? Maybe like two dozen, but yeah, it's not very many. Two dozen. That's wild to me. Look, I mean, can afford, yeah. I mean, you know, if Elon Musk, to pick someone at random, woke up tomorrow and said, like, I want to spend 200 million on a Warhol, like, he could do it easily. He has the money. But he's not an art collector. He doesn't even own any homes. You know, where would he put it? The question is, who has both the wherewithal and the desire mm. to spend anything like that? He could shoot it into space, which he tends to do as a vanity <laughs> thing anyway. exactly. Marilyn in space. He was my backup number today because he lost, would you say, $124 billion since November, which is, ha, huh, kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, pour one out for Elon. <laughs> 